0: don't make me cry. Don't make me cry. You know, I didn't know that song was so well liked, (laughs) Sean. Oh my goodness. Okay, you can't imagine how good it is to be back. We'll say something at the end of the service. I want to preach. In 1832, I think it was the first Sunday, a preacher by the name of Talbert Fanning, who was an author A geologist, by the way, one of the first geologists of the state of Tennessee, educator, publisher, preached what we think is the first sermon at a Church of Christ in the city of Murfreesboro. It was what became the East Main Church of Christ, but it was located on the foot of Vine Street at the time. Uh, Several years later, Fanning was traveling to visit family in Mississippi. He and his wife Charlotte were riding down the dirt roads at the time, and when they got to Russellville, Uh, Alabama, a storm blew in, and the storm was so bad that it turned all the dirt roads into mud. So Fanning was unable to travel, so they spent the night in Russellville. Well, he didn't want to pass up an opportunity to preach, and so he preached out in a field next to a barn. A handful of people showed up, and it was actually uneventful. The next morning he got up to leave to continue his journey to Mississippi, and the wagon broke down in Russellville. So now, sensing that God might be calling him to do something, he advertised again and preached the second night. And the sermon was so well-received that he baptized 30 people that night. Now, knowing that God had sent the storm for the purpose of evangelizing Russellville, Alabama, he stayed for two more weeks. And by the time he left, he had literally baptized half of the city of Russellville, Alabama. And through the years, Fanning would comment on how something so seemingly insignificant at the time, which is a storm, could be used by God to accomplish such a wonderful purpose. Right now, there are 9,000 souls in the town of Russellville, Alabama, and 16 churches of Christ. So God uses storms. It's odd to me, fascinating, providential, that the sermon planning team, when I was ill-disposed for the last couple of months, planned this series on the life of Jesus. Actually, I told them, just plan whatever you want. You don't even have to tell me. So I, I didn't even know they were doing it. And they pegged June the 19th for Luke 8, Jesus calming the storm. So I didn't pick the text. Jesus did, or Glenn, Rob, one of the two. And, <laughs> but it does seem like a pretty appropriate text for me today. Uh, because we've been going through our version of a storm lately. Now, here's what I know I know that the only way to escape a storm is to die, that all of us will go through storms. And for each of us, the storm is very intimate, it's very personal, it can be very terrifying, it can be full of pain, and it can bring a whole lot of sorrow and sadness. Every Wednesday night, the elders at North Boulevard gather and they pray. Most of the time in their meetings, which go for two or three hours, most of the time they spend in prayer. In fact, when they bring up an issue in the elders' meeting, usually as soon as they talk about an issue, they pray over it. Almost every issue. And just Wednesday night, I I was able to go back for the first time in person to an elders' meeting. I was just looking at the prayer requests. These are the pages of prayers that the elders have worked through with names on them. Sympathy to people who've lost family members strokes, heart problems, financial problems. Linda Henson and I were counting this week, we think probably as many as 100 people at North Boulevard have had cancer in the last several years. We have people who are confined to long-term healthcare centers. Many of them are doing well, I'm not suggesting that's a curse, but for many of them it's sad, it's lonely, and they miss their home. We have the marriages, just a sheet full of names of people whose marriages are struggling and who are in intense, painful relationships. And as I think about these, I do think the story of Luke chapter 8, the text that I want to preach today, is a real fitting text for all of us because you're going to go through storms. And it seems that if we can sing these happy, clappy songs about Jesus when things are good, then we also need to be able to sing them when things aren't so good that we have to learn to sing even when we're filled with terror and pain and sorrow because Jesus is the God of peace but he's also the God of the storm and so Luke chapter 8, can I get you to turn there? I'll have some of the text on the wall behind me but other texts, it'd just be great to have a Bible open in your lap or on your phone or tablet or whatever you're using. We're going to read starting at verse 22 kind of unpack it. And what I want you to walk away with, among other things, I think the biggest thing, if I could give you one thing, it would be this. Understand that even in the storm, God is leading you someplace where you need to be. In fact, sometimes the storm is the only way to get you there. That's just not happy to hear, but it's true and it's right. So here we are, verse 22. One day Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. So just because I like the historical part of it, let me just do a little thing. Matthew 8 says that Jesus was in Capernaum. This was the headquarters of his adult ministry. In fact, most of Jesus' adult ministry was situated in about a 10-mile strip on the northwestern shore of the Sea or Lake of Galilee. It's really a lake. It's called Sea, but it's a freshwater lake. We're standing on Mount Arbel here which looks down over the Sea of Galilee and what you can see is Magdala where Mary was from is here, Caesarea and Bethsaida, two towns associated with the ministry of Jesus, Capernaum here, and on the other side is the Gerasene shore. So what Jesus has said to the disciples is we're going to get in a boat, we're going to travel to the other side to the Gerasene side. And when you think about what he's up to, Jesus is really trying to get away from the crowd, but he's actually preparing to teach the disciples two really important lessons and they're the lessons I want us to see as well a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in a great danger the disciples went and woke him saying master master we're going to drown so just to help you sort of get a perspective on how intimate all of this actually was and by the way i'm just going to say it again when you're going through a storm it's very personal it feels very intimate So in 1986, the Sea of Galilee was, um, it was lower than it's been in decades. It was so low that people found all sorts of artifacts buried in the mud where the water had receded, including this boat. So this is a frame holding up the remains of a first century boat. This boat is from the time of Jesus. It was discovered at Magdala, where I just showed you. I want to show you the boat because the boat is 27 feet long, seven and a half feet across and four and a half feet tall. And I want you to imagine 13 guys in that boat. It was really intimate. Jesus was right there with them. When the storm came up, the storm came up. It's not like they had to travel way back to the back of a ship. Jesus was asleep right next to them. They're probably all rubbing up against each other in the middle of the storm. And I want to share that with you because I want you to know in your storm, Jesus promises that he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you, and He will never abandon you. And I'm going to tell you, perhaps the worst part of the typical storms that we face, the storms that I just referenced, are sometimes the feelings of being all alone, that there's nobody to understand, uh, that at that last moment, it's just you. You're by yourself. And we were not designed that way. As mammals... We were designed to require touch and affection and love. I, I just tell you, you can never lose in a sermon when you show a puppy picture. So we just got blessed at Rachel and Dalton's little uh, 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 cavalier, just the, these are the first three. They had six puppies. And I want you to see how um, Willow is, is holding these puppies and she brings them all in and she puts her whole body over them. And how sweet they are, how they all snuggle up. It's because we're actually designed not to be alone. The greatest curse, I think, for most any of us is the curse of loneliness. And when you're in the middle of a storm, sometimes it can feel so lonely. And that's why it's so important to remember that he's always in the middle of a storm with us. This is the great promise of Jesus. So we preach a lot from Matthew 28, go make disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do at North Boulevard. We make disciples. But don't miss the promise that Jesus gives with the Great Commission. He ends it, the last verse, the last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew. And I am with you to the end of the age. That the promise of God is that he will never leave us. As it's written in Hebrews 13, God has said, "Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you." So we say with confidence, "The Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid." And he gives signs of His presence all over the place. When you got a great family that looks out for you, that's a sign of the presence of Christ. When you have a church, I'm, I want to tell those of you who are online. We're so delighted that you're in our online campus. I did learn from, what was it, eight weeks or ten weeks of online, how much I miss being with you in person. It's a lot more than I can say. To be here and to sing together, to hug and to touch. So we've gotten all these cards. I think I've told you about some of the cards. You know, we've gotten no fewer than 30 cards from members of the East Main Church of Christ people will send them from East Main and they'll say their name and they'll say East Main Church of Christ. I'm so grateful for that. But we have a basket full of cards. These just came this week. These are for some of our children. Presley Barrett, we are praying for you. Hope you feel better. We miss you. Emily Campbell, we miss you. We hope you come back and teach us. Charlie Strickland, we are all praying for you. Charlie King, this is my favorite. Dear David Young, you are the best preacher ever. (laughs) You know, I just did all this to get to that card. (laughs) So each one of these little acts of grace is a confirmation from God that I haven't left you. I'm with you. Every meal that's delivered to our house every other night for three months, sometimes two meals in a night, sometimes every night, every time the lawn is mowed, every day, Every act of generosity is God saying again, see, I told you, I'm not going to leave you. I won't leave you. It's so sad to me that in the West, in North America and in Europe, we've lost sight of that which is most important, and that's the spiritual. Like we have blinders on. The one thing that's constant in you that never changes is your spirit. That's the biggest part of you, and it's the thing we seem not even to notice, So open your eyes and see the Jesus who's right there with us. I have to tell you guys this. I kind of told God I would. A little creepy for some of you. It was um, May the 20th that I had this. So actually I've been put under three times now. So three surgical procedures. The last time we had the nodules in the lung. So you've heard the story of the nodules. Quite a few of them, six, half a dozen, maybe a few more. One of them was a pretty good size, but it was buried deep in the lung. She said it was the size of a cherry tomato. I'm thinking she looked at me and said, well, there's no way this guy will figure out centimeters. Let's, let's use a food analogy. <laughs> so, <laughs> And that, it, it did, it worked instantly. I understood what a cherry tomato is. Um, so they thought on the 20th that they could go in and remove the nodules closest to the surface. They would be cancerous. They would biopsy them on the spot. And we'd be done and I'd be back in the pulpit. Actually, that's what I thought. Well, the first nodule was not cancerous. She went a little deeper. It was not cancerous. But then the big one, which was very, very deep inside, she had to go after. They just needed to anyway. So they did what's called a wedge resection. Those of you in medicine know that means she had to, had to remove part of my right lung, which is why it's taken so much time to recover. Well, I had told Julie, I think, beforehand the longer the surgery goes, the better it's gonna be because it's gonna mean they can't find the cancer. And it went four and a half hours. And it was a Friday night and you know she had to say, yes, you have a very fast growing tumor in your lung and it is cancerous. Julie came in and my recovery, I'm in the recovery room and it was, it was, it was one of our worst nights. Then we discovered there was no room available. Now I want you to know Vanderbilt has been, it treated us like royalty. So we not have no complaints. We are high on Vanderbilt, but they didn't have a room that night. And Julie's been with me every step of the way, every doctor's visit, every step of the way. And so she couldn't stay that night. And she was sobbing and I was crying. We just found out, yes, I have renal cancer. Not only have I had the kidney removed, but now it's spread to my lungs. It's confirmed. She had to leave and I had to spend the night in the recovery room, which at Vanderbilt a large recovery room. I didn't sleep that night, but as I lay in the bed, the lights were out and all I could hear were sort of the murmurs of the equipment. And occasionally I could hear a few nurses whispering to each other, a patient maybe groaning a little bit over on the other side. And somewhere around one or two o'clock in the morning, I looked down at the foot of my bed And on either side, now don't ask me what it looked like because I can't say, but on either side of the foot of my bed was an angel. And they stood guard over me the whole night. I'm not making it up. And I thought, isn't that just like Christ? That when the one night she can't stay, he sends his angels to guard me. And I just thought that's what he means when he says, I'm with you, I will never leave you. And by the way, for those of you who need the scripture, here it is. Aren't angels just ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Why should we be surprised when we see one? I'm just saying, Jesus was in the boat, and he promises you, regardless of what storm you might be going through, that he will never leave you. Let's keep going. Verse 24, he got up and rebuked the wind, the raging waters, the storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Actually, this probably is the point of the story that occurs in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, and Luke's gospel, the calming of the storm, which is to affirm that Christ has more power than any storm you will experience. In fact, the matter is, Christ calming the storm is not even the biggest story in chapter 8 of Luke's gospel because when he reaches the other side, he drives out a demon who is so many, they call him Legion. That's an even bigger miracle. I mean, the point is, Christ has all the power in the world. He is, after all, God. He's divine. As the book of Colossians says, all things were made by him. All things were made for him, and all things stand before him, and in him all things hold together. He's the author of every page of scripture, black letter or red. He is the one who upholds with his right hand all of the universe. He's the reason it doesn't fly apart, he's the reason it's here. He has more power than we can imagine. Many of us in this room have experienced the miracles of God. They're actually quite common around North Boulevard. When we understand a miracle as the Bible describes it, a miracle in the Bible is anything God does that is powerful, significant, or wonderful. Sign, wonder, or power. That's the biblical language. In this room we have people who have gone in for a CT that last month was filled with bad news and this month is totally clean. It's in this room. We've had members in this room right now who have died who have actually witnessed the singing in heaven and then were brought back by Jesus. In this room, we have people who have seen individuals and their families saved from death. I've had it happen twice in my family. We have individuals in here who ask God, beg God, please, will you care for this? And he does. That we shouldn't be surprised that God can do all kinds of miracles. That's just the kind of God he is. He can calm a storm. He has more power than any storm you can experience. You know, I've thought a lot about this lately. The fact that in his mercy, God can do whatever he wants to do. So in his mercy, God can save me from cancer, right? We all know that. And you've prayed that. Many of you have. Most of you have probably. And I want you to know one thing that God has already done. God has actually worked a miracle that I think is probably more significant than the miracle of healing from cancer might turn out to be. And that is, as an anxious person, God has given me peace that you would never have guessed David Young could have if you knew David Young. Like a real peace that passes understanding. And I'm going to tell you, it's it's hard to get these words out. I'm choking on them. But I think that's a bigger miracle for me than being physically healed. And I want to say this as well. It's possible that God will say, not this time, not on the cancer. I'm going in this week for immunotherapy. The big tumors are out, but I have a fast growing renal cancer and it's coming back. If the immunotherapy works, I've got years and years to go. And if it doesn't, well, it's in the hands of God. But don't say in a worst case scenario, that God didn't save him. Cause I just want to tell you a few things. When I was in my twenties, my brother and I were climbing rocks in the uh, Great Smoky Mountains, just above the Goshen Prong stream. And I fell off a ledge and I fell in a rattlesnake pit, literally. When I hit the bottom, a rattlesnake latched onto my boot and the entire mountain around us lit up with the rattle of rattlesnakes. We ended up opening up a stove, pouring white gas down the side of the mountain and running through the fire to escape alive. God saved me. In 2008, I was preparing for a marathon. I ran 27 miles the day after I'd swallowed a whole mess of fish bones. And I woke up the next day with a deadly case of peritonitis, and they weren't sure I was going to make it, and God saved me. About eight years ago, I went to see my son in West Tennessee on my motorcycle, and as I was riding down Highway 100, a child on a bicycle pulled out on Highway 100 in front of me, and my choice was to hit the child or run off the road. I ran off the road, I hit a telephone pole on a motorcycle, went over the top, and besides seeing Dr. McKissick, I was pretty much okay after that. And I don't think I've ever told y'all, but I was in a tornado one time. (laughs) I was in two tornadoes because Travis Duke and I went backpacking up at Land Between the Lakes one night and a tornado came in. The river we were camping on flooded out the campsite. And at 2 a.m., we found ourselves swimming across a swollen river trying to stay alive. So if it doesn't work this time, don't say God didn't save him. (laughs) I'm serious. He has saved me multiple times. And I do want to remind you that all 12 of the men that were in the boat with Jesus eventually died. You know, I'm 61, I'm sitting around. I've got two things to do right now in my life. Look at genealogies on the internet and watch Dateline. Which, by the way, I just want to tell you, if you watch enough Dateline, you would conclude that 50% of all marriages end in murder because they do on Dateline. <laughs> I didn't know that so many marriages end in murder, but they apparently do. It was the perfect marriage. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. When they say that, run. Here's what I can say. The other thing is, as I look at these genealogies, I realize, by the way, if you go 500 years back, you have, and I'm not exaggerating, you have a million ancestors 500 years back. Do the math. So, if you say you're kin to Charlemagne, it's not a big deal, everybody else is too. But here's something I've noticed when I look at my ancestors, they're all dead. They're all dead. That is, though we were made for this world, once we broke it, it was no longer our home. And that God in his mercy is actually going to bring us a resurrected home, a resurrected creation, a resurrected body, a resurrected city of Jerusalem, resurrected loves, where every story that was never finished gets finally finished. And where every love that was never culminated gets finally culminated. That is, this is just what God does. And so we want to be okay with a God who does signs, wonders, and powers, even when he says, not this time. Which leads me to my last point. The opening verse in the closing section of Luke 8 tells us that the journey through the storm was actually a journey towards something. This is easy to forget. To me, this is the best part of the story, at least at this point in my life, because it tells me that the storm was not random. There was a purpose to it. It has a meaning to it. And when you're suffering, when you're afraid, when you're terrified, when you're in pain, knowing that there's a meaning to it, that it has some sort of purpose, sometimes is the difference between courage and discouragement. Knowing this, we're going somewhere with this. So listen, as they set out in verse 22, Jesus says, let's go to the other side Like They're going somewhere. And when they get to the other side, they land in this area near Gerasa or Gadara. The, 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 uh, the Gospels have different words for the name of this, uh, this place. At any rate, when Jesus shows up, he meets a guy who has multiple demons and he drives them out. The whole storm has a purpose. He's actually taking us someplace. Your suffering has a purpose. God's leading you somewhere, even through your suffering. And so, when we're suffering, one of the best things we can do is make the commitment. And I'm choking on these words too because this is not natural for me. In fact, before I even say it, I'll just tell you, I hate change. If you wonder why I always wear blue shirts and I only have one pair of socks. I mean, I have 20 pairs just like this because then I don't have to pick out the socks. I don't want to change anything. It goes deeper too, but I'm going to stop there. They told me the medicine would do this to me. (laughs) If you move something on my desk, that's all I'm going to think about the rest of the day is how did this go over there? I like it over here. So when I go through my storm, my suffering, my pain and so forth, I don't like it because I miss what I used to have. I, I don't want to say goodbye to anything. I don't want anything to end. I want everything to stay the same for the rest of my life. That's what I want. But I am learning, so I have to choke these words out. To stop at some point, stop looking at the shore you left and start looking at the shore where He's taking you. Start looking at what He's going to do with this and stop worrying about what you're giving up. I mean, there's a possibility that I had my last pain-free day on March the 7th. And I don't like that. I don't know where God's going to take me, but I know that the longer I look at the shore I left, the less likely I'm going to be grateful to the shore he's taken me to. And so I want to look at where he's leading me because I know that the Lord is my shepherd. And I know he's leading me. And he's leading me through the storm. And if nothing else, I know this. I know, as Paul says, when I had my thorn in the flesh, Paul says, I had, whatever his affliction was, he doesn't say, we don't know, but he's got some problem. I'm sure it's actually affecting his ministry. And he says, three times I prayed, Lord, will you just take this away from me? And God's answer was, no. My grace is better than your healing. I want you to live on my grace. And so Paul ends up saying, all right, I'll live in perfection in my weakness. I'll depend on your grace or I've thought of this one a lot, Hebrews 12. Now, let me just say, I don't know the source of so much of our suffering. God is capable of inflicting suffering, but I don't want to lay suffering at the feet of God. The devil's capable of inflicting suffer- suffering, but I actually know that a lot of my suffering is from my own stupid choices. So I'm going to just set aside the question of whence comes suffering. And I'm going to say this, regardless of whence it comes, I know God uses it. And he actually uses it the same way that a father who loves a child will use discipline to help a child. When we hear discipline, we think punishment, but the word discipline is the word disciple. My father discipled me. Sometimes it involved punishment, probably not enough to be honest with you. But listen to how the Hebrew writer puts it, quoting from the Proverbs. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines who? He disciplines the ones he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. And this is the message I want to say to myself. Suffering is a way of God saying, I'm treating you like a child. That God's up to something. God must be up to something at North Boulevard. Your preaching minister has cancer. Maybe he's up to something in the life of my family, but I know he's up to something in my life. And I already can name it. He's changing me on the inside, and I needed it. And so what we can say is that there's a purpose to our suffering. There's meaning to the suffering for the believer. It's not random. It's not a pure tragedy. It's actually an opportunity for us to go someplace where we really needed to be anyway. And so if that's the case, let me say this. Remind yourself In your storms who is actually in charge and do this look for the Christ who's in your storm he's there take the blinders off and see him those angels at the end of my bed you know if I were you I would ask me what did they look like but I'm telling you I can't describe it I just can't describe it not because I'd refuse to I just can't but if you look they're there and don't look back for long guys look to where he's taking you It's okay to say bye. You know, March the 8th, we went in. Goodness, I had a cough. If you'd have asked me, I could have run a 10K on March the 7th. I mean, without even training. I work out every day. I know it doesn't look like it, but I do. There's a whole lot of muscle beneath this. (laughs) (laughs) I could have run a 10K on March the 7th. No kidding. We go in on March 8th. We get a CT. We think it's no big deal. The PA calls and says, hey, you need to come in. I want to go over these results. I said to her, I just tell me on the phone, you know, while I come in. She says, "No, I would really like for you to come in." I said, "Oh, do I need to bring Julie?" She said, "That's probably a good idea." And everything changed. And here's what I know: if I spend the rest of my life looking back at March seventh, I'll never be grateful that I got to look at the shore where he's taken me. I got to quit saying goodbye, and I got to be excited and. And grateful that I have a Christ who loves me enough to take me to a place where he knew I needed to be anyway. Don't spend too much time looking backward and don't give up before you get your miracle. It's Juneteenth today. You know that on the 19th of June 1865, at least symbolically the last African American slaves in the U.S. were told you're free at last. It's Galveston, Texas. If you had asked those poor people in bondage, on June 18th, what does your future look like? What would they have said? Bondage, as far as we can tell for the rest of our lives. Little did they know that the very next day the word would get there, free at last, free at last. What I'm saying to you is in the middle of a storm, don't give up before you get your miracle. Because it's coming. The great blessing's on its way, and it's on its way because He leads us, and He leads us through our storms as well. Speaking of the Civil War, in 1862, in April of that year, the Battle of Shiloh was fought. It surprised everyone because of its savagery. Most people evidently went into the Civil War with all that rah-rah you know, we're going to win in parades and bands and beautiful uniforms and whatnot. And by 1862, it's pretty obvious this was going to be intimate, personal, bloody, and 600,000 people are going to die. There was a lot of discouragement north and south, as well there should have been. One preacher by the name of Joseph Gilmore in Rochester, New York, preached a sermon on the 23rd Psalm in 62, 1862. And he came home and he said to his wife, I'm not satisfied that I've even touched on the misery we're feeling right now. And he jotted down a poem about God's leadership, handed it to his wife, and went on with his life. Several years later, Gilmore was visiting a church. He opened his hymnal and they started singing the song of the poem he had written several years ago. Unbeknownst to him, his wife had sent it to a publisher who had it set to music and it was actually placed in a hymnal and today the song is in no fewer than 2,000 Christian hymnals. You know the song? It's the one I've been singing all week. He leadeth me, O blessed thought of words with heavenly comfort fraught, whatever I do, where I be, still God's hand that leadeth me. And the last verse, when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory's won, even death's cold wave I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. I really wanted to sing this to you, especially that second verse. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, By waters calm, or troubled sea, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. No matter what, you're going to go through the storms. You can pick Christ, find meaning in it, or you can do it all by yourself and you don't have to. Hey, y'all stand up, online you can stand up as well, y'all stand up for a second. I uh, want to invite you. This is kind of unplanned. If you'll sing the last, the the chorus with me. Are you able to, I only have half a lung if you'll lead it for us. (laughs) Uh, Lead that last one for us. And uh, let's remember who is God of the storms.